For all of us, the problem that emerges from the study of implicit bias is, are we doing our job as well as we can be? And I think we have a very powerful argument on our side. You want to do this because you yourself are the kind of person who wants to live a life that is consistent with values and with goals and intentions. Now, if I tell you and me that we're not leading our lives the way in which we ourselves want, I think we'll get into gear. We will want to do something about it. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Darvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter and Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we have to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're talking to Dr. Mazarin Banaji, an award-winning experimental psychologist and professor at Harvard University and the author of Blind Spot: The Hidden Biases of Good People. But wait, I'm pretty sure Dr. Banaji never worked in CMK or marketing at P&G. So what's going on? <laughs> Hey, Roman. How's it going? Oh, hey, it's Dorian Positano, who's P&G's Director of New Business and Content Innovation, who also hosts P&G's internal podcast, More Than Soap, which is available to all 100,000 P&G employees worldwide. Great to have you on Learnings from Leaders, Dorian. So tell me more about this podcast. Yeah, P&G is much more than just a soap company. And the possibilities of what we can do to build our business and impact the world are endless. But we walk around with blinders on and we don't even know we're wearing them most of the time. And so on the podcast, what we do is we sit down with guests and we rip those blinders off to learn about what they would see if they were in our shoes. And then after every conversation, we also sit down with a PNG leader to unpack the insights and apply them to our world at PNG. Yeah, your guest list is quite impressive. So let's talk about today's episode. My guest today is Dr. Mazarin Banaji. Dr. Banaji is an award-winning experimental psychologist and professor at the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. Her research explores the human mind, why and how we think and feel, especially in social contexts. She's helped create world-renowned frameworks to better identify and address implicit human biases and is the co-creator of the Implicit Association Test, which has been used over 40 million times now around the world. We're going to talk about how human beings think, the nature of subconscious human biases, and some of the fascinating concepts and theories in Dr. Banaji's book titled Blind Spot: The Hidden Biases of Good People. We'll discuss what individuals and organizations can do to combat implicit bias and why we should, even if altruism isn't the motivation. It's a really great one, and I'm just so excited to share this episode with our audience. 
And this will be one of several that we'll feature, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention for the benefit of all the PNG employees who we know are listening to our PNG alumni podcast. So those of you PNG listeners who have not yet subscribed to More Than Soap yet, you got to check it out because you'll have exclusive access to not just the entire catalog of amazing conversations that Dorian and his entire team have each week, but you'll also get access to post-interview conversations with PNG leaders. That's right, Raman. Any PNG employee around the world can just go to getmorethansoap.com to hear any of our exclusive content, which you can listen to right on your favorite podcasting app. And, you know, it's worth mentioning that for PNG employees every other week, we also sit down with Shane Meeker, our PNG historian, to talk about some of PNG's most fascinating stories. That is so awesome. I'm super jealous of all our friends still at PNG who get to hear this every week. So look, I know we're looking forward to lots of future podcasting partnerships with More Than Soap on this show. So without further ado, let's jump straight into the More Than Soap conversation. Yes, Crest really works. Please, please don't squeeze don't the charm. More doctors advise ivory for the skin than any other soap. Dr. Banaji, welcome to the More Than So podcast. I'm so happy to be with you, Dorian. So I heard you describe your work one time as your calling. And I'd love for you to tell us, I mean, what is that calling and how did you discover it? The way I think about how I came to it is interesting because I certainly didn't think of myself as having a calling. Uh, I was a girl who was a mostly sick child growing up uh, in the late 50s and early 60s in South India. Uh, the assumption that you know I would even go to college was sort of iffy, but the fact that I might get a PhD and, and have a career instead of getting married at 16 and having many children was simply um, you know, it was just, it was, it wasn't in the cards, but a few different things happened. You know, my father who gave me an intense love of the printed page, my mother who fought hard to not have me pulled out of school, uh, and basically just give up being educated in middle school. And then finally a discovery that I made while I was traveling on a train, uh, from school back home. And I found at a bookstore on the train platform a set of five volumes of the Handbook of Social Psychology, 1968. This was in about 78 that I found them. And I bought them, uh, persuading the bookseller that they had so much dust on them that he should sell them to me for less than a dollar a book, uh, which he did. And I just opened the first volume on that train and I read um, what was in it. And I discovered a whole world. There were a group of people called social psychologists. They did experiments but not on rocks or on atoms. What they studied were human beings, human behavior, and they were creating little dramas in a laboratory and measuring what people would do. And I just couldn't believe that there could be a science of this kind. Mm. And one thing led to another, and I ended up in the United States in a PhD program. Wow. Well, I love hearing stories like that. And it's just so clear to me that you seem to have always had this innate curiosity about the world. And I think that's so important. And in fact, it's one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast called More Than Soap, which is meant to be about embracing possibility. So I, I think you're a testament to that. And I'm just so excited to have you on the show. 
So I just uh, finished your book titled Blind Spot, and there's a core concept in your book, uh, which is termed implicit social cognition. I was wondering if you could talk about what that is and sort of explain that concept for our listeners. Sure. Let's take social cognition first. Social cognition is a phrase that we use when we want to say that we're studying the mental process by which each of us represents other human beings in our mind. Other human beings are, in a sense, the most important object in our universe. Nothing else compares to the impact other people can have on us and we can have on them. Mm. And other people come sort of in two ways, as individuals, Dorian, talking to Mazarin, but they also arrive as members of social groups. You know, you are a certain height and a certain weight, a certain level of physical attractiveness. You have a certain sexuality, a certain gender, a certain religion, and so do I. And so people who study social cognition are interested in how a single human being represents in their mind who another human is. And what we find is that the groups to which we belong often are the lens through which we see people. Mm. I say I'm seeing Dorian, but my brain is computing a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. He has glasses on. People who wear glasses are smart, you know, things like that. And all of this, the word implicit before it is simply to signal that much of that processing we're doing is not within our conscious awareness. Mm. In fact, glasses are a very good example to use. When you see somebody who wears glasses, like you and I do, the natural assumption is that we're smarter. This is good for us because people are assuming that we are smarter than they would have thought we were had we not been wearing glasses. Right. And now, if you start with something as simple as a pair of glasses, think about how important skin tone is mm. or how important sexuality might be or how important somebody's socioeconomic status is. Um, these are the lenses through which we see people, think about them, uh, decide, make decisions about them. Uh, what kind of penalty should this person get for something they did that was bad? Uh, does an attractive person get, you know, physically attractive person get a lower penalty for performing the same crime? So people who study implicit social cognition are really invested in finding ways to get at that stuff that's in our head that's hidden even to us. I heard you tell a riddle once uh, about a child uh, who was in a car accident and then taken to an emergency room. And it sort of summed up for me this concept that you just described. And I, for one, fell into the trap of the riddle actually. And I was wondering if you could explain it. You'll do a much better job than me. And as I said, I I really do think it encompasses this concept so well. Good time to ask me. We're just finishing up the paper on this because we now have thousands of people to whom we've posed this riddle Hmm. and we have good data on all the possible answers that they give. So I can tell you a lot about it. Hmm. For your listeners, here's the riddle. A father and his son are in a car accident. The father dies at the scene. The son is badly injured and is rushed to a nearby hospital. In the operating room, the surgeon looks at the boy and says, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. How can this be? Is the question that we pose to people. Now, at one level, this is such a simple riddle. And yet, less than 
20% or so of the people who hear it are able to give us the answer that we're looking for, which is in some ways the most probable answer. Mm -hmm. And the answer they should give us is, oh, the surgeon is the boy's mother. Mm -hmm. That's how it's possible. Mm -hmm. The father is dead, the mother is the surgeon. Think about how simple this event actually is. Right. So, by the way, only 20% get the answer. Well, right, I do right? feel so a bit 80%. better now. Okay, yes. I'm in the 80%. And I'm, I'm in that 20 I'm, I'm not in the 20%. Okay. I'm in right. the 80% it who did not. Better. Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when I was asked this riddle, it was 1984, so I couldn't even imagine uh, same-sex parents. But what I did say is it could be a biological father and the adoptive father or something like that, mm. right? So let's just dissect this. See, think about how simple this riddle is, and I'm glad you're, you're picking up on it because you're right. It's one of the clearest ways of demonstrating just how we fall prey to these things called stereotypes, right? Mm -hmm. so, so the simplicity of it is this. One parent is dead. We know it's the father. Mm -hmm. Somebody else is saying, I'm the other parent. Right. Who could it be? <laughs> just... Who? Our little peanut brain cannot make that leap and say, it's if the crazy. father is dead and somebody, it's crazy. It's right? crazy. It is. But that's the power of an expectation. Yep. And in this case, the expectation is coming from a reasonable place. It's coming from the place that most surgeons are men. Not 100%, right? 80%, mm -hmm. let's say. So there is 20% of surgeons that we know can be women. Right. But when faced with that, we somehow can't reach for that answer. And I think it's a great example of being dumbfounded. Stereotypes dumbfound us. They, yeah. they basically don't allow us to complete correct inferential thinking. All you have to do is make a simple inference. The surgeon is the boy's mother, and we can't do it. 20% of people can do it, but not 80% of them. Now, the reason this is important is because there have recently been a spate of uh, reports of women, many of them are young African-American women who are on an airplane and a patient takes ill on the plane. Mm -hmm. uh, not a patient, a, a passenger on the, on the plane um, is fallen ill. And you, you've been on planes when people say, is there a doctor on board? And these women report saying, I'm a doctor and offering to help. And the reactions they get from the flight attendants is really interesting. Flight attendants have been known to say things like, sweetie, please sit down. We have an wow. emergency. Don't bother me now. I'll come to you later. And then eventually when it becomes clear that she's saying, look, I'm, I'm a doctor. At least in two cases, the flight attendant said, may, may I see some credentials? Wow. Now, Ugh. this to me, on the one hand, it is a wow experience. Like, there's no question that we would all say, who are these flight attendants? Yeah. But what I'm trying to explain to your audience is, and to us, is that we are those flight attendants. Mm -hmm. You and I, we didn't get that answer, right? So we are prime we are prime subjects for showing that bias if we were the flight attendants. So the first thing we should do with implicit bias is to stop wagging our finger at everybody else and start to point it to ourselves. Right. And say, and especially, I will say this especially for liberals. Liberals are, are, are very good at pointing fingers at other people, but... Our task is to tell liberals that they too live in the same world in which we see that doctors and surgeons are men, and we too carry that thumbprint of the culture on our brain. And in that moment of quickly trying to help somebody, 
we will actually be costing them. So what's the problem with the behavior of the flight attendant? People bring up one problem. Oh, the woman doctor was, was dissed. The woman doctor was not respected. The woman doctor was not selected. Yes, all that is true. But for a moment, let me put that aside because there's an even bigger problem. A patient could have died. Yeah. A patient could have died. So our point, whether it's Procter & Gamble or Harvard University or an airline, for all of us, the problem that emerges from the study of implicit bias is, are we doing our job as well as we can be? Mm -hmm, okay. mm -hmm. Are you building, is, is P&G building the very products that are needed by most people? You know, are we thinking about who needs a product and should we invest in it, right? Am I thinking about the fact that my students in my class are coming from very different backgrounds and yet by the manner in which I might be speaking, I might simply not connect with students for whom I'm not doing my job. I'm, mm. not, I'm not meeting um, the requirements that I myself have set. And one of the wonderful things about human beings today is that our values are really great, right? We want to be fair. We want to be egalitarian in our treatment. We want the best person to win. And so when we tell people to change, I think we have a very powerful argument on our side. We're not saying do this because some government is telling you to do this. You don't have to know about it because your boss is telling you about it. You want to do this because you yourself are the kind of person who we know wants to live a life that is consistent with values and with goals and intentions. Right. Now, if I tell you and me that we're not leading our lives the way in which we ourselves want, I think we'll, we'll get into gear. We will want to do something about yeah. it. Well, I, I take that even one step further for me personally, and it's the acknowledgement that by overcoming these implicit biases, we are not only benefiting the subject of that implicit bias, but we're doing ourselves a favor because we're less likely to make uninformed decisions. We're, we're less likely to, mm -hmm. um, you know, select someone for a job to work with us who isn't as qualified as they could be or, or ought to have that job based on their experience. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that it, it's sort of twofold. And frankly, the subtitle of your book, for me, hits the nail on the head of the hidden biases of good people. You know, we're, we're talking about people who don't want to have these, you know, unconscious biases that, that lead them in a particular direction uh, and lead them astray, but they're there, which actually leads me to another question for you. You know, these snap judgments that our mind makes that are completely unconscious obviously don't come from some kind of innate evil within us. So, so where do they come from? What are they based on? Is it upbringing or history or what we've read, seen on TV, you know, culture in general? I mean, I assume it's our memories in some way, but where is this coming from? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's from everywhere that you mentioned. Hmm. Um, let's just think about it. First of all, we are a certain kind of species, right? We have a certain evolutionary history. Our ancestors had to do certain things to survive. They had to have a certain way of doing things so that they would live to the next day. So our brains are very much shaped by the pressures 
of the environment on, on our ancestors. And so we have a certain type of brain. We just inherit it. Mm -hmm. It is not something we could choose. Okay. It has a certain way of dealing with the outside world. We have five senses, uh, not 12. Uh, you know, we have, we have limitations to how data can come in, right? And that's given. That is a big piece of this problem because you mentioned memory. Well, our memories serve a certain function. They, they serve to remind us about the things we should do and shouldn't do, but they don't remember everything. So when I think I'm making a decision about somebody, I'm only looking at the three or four events about them that I can remember over our interactions over the past year. My memory is enough to allow me to survive, to remember what I ate yesterday and when I should eat again and things like that, but it does not give me perfect data. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest contributions of experimental psychology over the last hundred years is this unrelenting message that we give that the world out there is not represented accurately inside. It's represented in some approximate fashion. And that approximation is part of the problem because I have this confidence that I know exactly who you are and all the great things that you can do and cannot do and all of that. But that is an approximation of the reality of who you are. So we have to come face to face with that, that the data that are getting in there and being stored and represented and used by us are in a sense corrupted data. Mm -hmm. They have to be because we're limited. That's number one. But then you have a certain biology, you in particular, I in particular, you know, some of us, are prone more to depression, others not. Some of us are more curious about the world, others are not. These are things that have to do with our own biology and that too, I think, determines where our thoughts and feelings come from. But you mentioned the big one and that is culture. Mm. Okay? And I think of culture almost in sort of, again, in two ways. One is culture in the big, the culture of the world today, the culture of the United States the culture of what's going on in my state and yours. But then there is that local culture. You know, I live in a place called Porter Square in Cambridge. So the Porter Square culture is going to have even more impact on me than the culture of maybe Massachusetts does because Porter Square I deal with every day. The people I see on the street matters to me. So my own individual path through my lifetime having lived in two big democracies, wildly different from each other, being a member of a minority group in both countries. Uh, these are my personal experiences. And of course, what matters also is something that we don't pay attention to, but I think both I and uh, PNG should take this very seriously. It's what you heard and saw right now, mm. like the most immediate situation you're in. I flip on the TV and I see something, okay? And it shows a typically disadvantaged group member, let's say an African-American man, in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. The person is a judge. The person is making decisions. Okay? It turns out that my implicit bias in that moment will turn in a more pro-black direction. So you see, it's not even our long histories and, and all of that. It's what you're seeing right now. So now it matters what my classroom is like. It matters what the offices at PNG are showing. It matters what we are saying in our immediate environments. That data doesn't stick and it doesn't last forever, but it shapes me in that moment. Mm. In that moment, I will be more or less biased. Right. That's really important for us to take away. Right. Because it just shows how much power we have over shaping our own environment. Well, let's talk about the first step which is to recognize some of the implicit biases that exist in our minds. 
So talk to me about the implicit association test. What is it and how did that come about? If you're interested in getting a little bit of a sense of what might be going on in your head, you can visit this website. It's easily found. It's implicit.harvard.edu. And if you click the button that says demonstration tests, in five minutes, you can have the following experience. You could pick a test. Um, let's say you want to pick a test to measure. Do you have a gender stereotype about who works at home and who works in the world outside the home? Okay. You would be asked to simply classify male and female names using two keys. If you see a name like Jane, press the left key. If you see a name like John, press the right key. Very mm -hmm. easy. You can do that. Now, do something else that's also simple. Whenever you see a word that re represents something about family, words like children, marriage, garden, house, kitchen, things like that, also just press that left key. When you see words that are from the world of work, words like briefcase, boardroom, manager, things like that, press the right key. You can do that very easily. Sounds simple enough. <laughs> now, now you put them together. Mm. Now, if you see a female name or a home word, press the left key. If you see a male name or a work-related work word, press the right key. Turns out it's almost as easy to do that as well, mm. okay? Because in our minds, female and home, male and career are so deeply connected that to your brain, now doing all four of these is not much harder than doing them, doing the simple version. But the kicker comes when you have to switch. Mm. Now, keep pressing the left key for female names, but also press the left key for work-related things. And when you associate, and on the right side, associate male with home. And when I do this demo in a room, you know, people just start laughing because they can't do this. Mm. You know, they, they can't. When I funny, say but can, not funny. Funny, yeah, but funny, but very, but, but I think profound in some yeah. sense. Yeah. I mean, it was the most transformative day of my life when I took my first IAT. Mm. I took the race version. Dark and light-skinned people. Um, I had to associate them with good and bad. I knew it was going to be easy for me to do this because I know who I am. I'm, I'm the great Mazarine who studies all this stuff. She knows all about this. She doesn't have bias. It's those other people out there who have it. And when I did the test, I have to say that when my fingers simply didn't move as rapidly on the keyboard when I was trying to associate black with good and white with bad, my first thought was, there's something screwed up with this test. Mm -hmm. Because I could not imagine that it was my head that was screwed up. <laughs> you know. And it took a few seconds to, to realize that. And from that day, I have not been, been the same. And that was the beginning of the idea of implicit bias. I want to read an excerpt from the book uh, from Malcolm Gladwell, who we're going to have on the podcast as well. He said, I took it for the first time and it told me that I had a moderate preference for white people. I was biased, slightly biased, against black people toward white people, which horrified me because my mom's Jamaican. The person in my life who I love more than almost anyone else is black and here I was taking a test which said, frankly, I wasn't too crazy about black people. So I did what anyone else would do. I took the test again. Maybe it was an error, right? Same result. Again, same result. And it was creepy, dispiriting, and devastating. Mm -hmm. I think for me that kind of sums it up. It does. You have to be 
smart like Malcolm to at some point realize that it is devastating. I mean, not everybody <laughs> does gets to that point. You know, there are people who will say something's wrong with the test and right. continue to say something's wrong with the test and they, they can do that. But I'm almost beginning to think that this is a measure of IQ. How quickly do you realize <laughs> that it's not the test, it's you, it's your culture. That's an amazing moment. The good news is, and why I think people like Malcolm should not continue to feel that it's devastating, even though it is, mm. is because of the change that we have seen in the last 15 years. So from about 2007 to today, we have been tracking what happens to race bias over time as a culture, what happens to sexuality bias over time as a culture. And the data are stunning. They, I would have thought, given my own, you know, I have a cynical view of human nature. How can I not, having <laughs> taken these tests and, and seeing my own bias and seeing the biases of millions of people, I feel justified in having a cynical view that these things are not going to change so easily. They're rooted uh, in the culture. They become rooted in our minds. But the data from a brilliant student by the name of Tessa Charlesworth have shown us that that is not the case. Our sexuality implicit bias has dropped off by, I don't know, like over 40% on mm. implicit measures. I mean, of course, on a survey measure, you can say anything you want, right, right? right? If you ask me, would you mind if a gay couple moved in to live next door to you? I would say, of course not, you know, mm. what do you think? I live in the People's Republic of Cambridge. Of course I would not. But that doesn't mean that I have no bias. And yet what these data are showing is that the anti-gay bias in 2007 has been steadily falling down until we now predict that in 10 years, Americans will be neutral mm. on it. So how did that happen? Mm -hmm. Grandmas and grandpas and grandchildren are changing. The coasts and the middle of the country are changing. People who are educated and less educated are changing. It doesn't seem to matter what group you belong to. Everybody is changing. So you tell me, like, how is that happening? We have to ask ourselves and we can point our fingers at particular sources mm. of what's driving this change. One of those, of course, is that somebody you love can tell you that they're gay. Right. And love will trump hate in this case. And yep. you will say, if my child tells me that he's gay, my religion, which had taught me otherwise, is something I will set aside. Most people are resolving it in that direction. Right. Okay? So I think that that sexuality has a wonderful opportunity uh, because you can discover that somebody who is your child can be gay. Um, that's not going to happen for race. Your right. child is not going to tell you, dad, at age 17, I've discovered that I'm black. That's right. not going to happen, right? right? And right. so we as a society need to set higher standards for what are we going to do for race if that's not going to happen naturally to us. Right. But also Hollywood. Hollywood played a huge role in changing our attitudes towards gay people. They care about this issue. It's personal for them. There are more gay people in the entertainment industry than in many other industries. And I think they did it in the most, I think, sort of effective way possible. They didn't give us sermons on, you know, gay people are good, we shouldn't be biased, nothing. All they did is very subtly put interesting gay characters in front of us on television or on, on the screen. These were people who were smarter and cooler and nicer than um, straight people. And over time, that's what I think led to 
the kind of change that we've seen. Right. On race bias, we also see change, so we should be pleased, but it is nowhere on the scale of the change for sexuality. Right. So race bias also is coming down, but you know, at about half the speed as it is for sexuality. And these two we have to keep foremost in our mind. If we are changing on our anti-gay attitudes and our anti-black attitudes, we should take great pleasure in, in that fact, but we should ask ourselves, why is it not moving faster? That begs a question, another question for me, uh, because if there's one thing that I learned after reading your book is that the challenge before us is overwhelming. It's huge. And one of the reasons that it's so significant is because these biases show up everywhere. And as you eloquently described earlier, these biases are sort of an inherent way of how the human mind operates. And it's something that we need to find ways to overcome. But my question is, you know, since they show up just about everywhere, how do we tackle the problem in a way that's manageable? I mean, you mentioned race and sexual orientation. What's the reason for that? Is it we're sort of narrowing in on where we feel like the most egregious inequalities exist and, and working from there? Or, and it's probably a question that I'm asking simply because I'm not well-informed enough. And, and I just, I'm curious to hear your, your answer to how do, we, how do we tackle this massive problem? The first thing to recognize is exactly what you said, and that is that it is massive. Mm. I think if we didn't acknowledge that, we will simply not be successful. Right. So I place this problem at about the same level as the problem of climate change. One is the climate that we are harming outside of us, and that is going to basically destroy us if we don't do something about it. And there are lots of naysayers. There are climate, climate change deniers, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's a big challenge. This is about the climate inside our heads. This climate also is corrupted for reasons that, that we now understand, but changing it is going to be as massive as the other task. But in the past, we have come upon really hard problems and we have been solving them. I mean, take something as simple as how do we decide on the guilt or innocence of people? You know, in the Middle Ages, if you thought somebody was guilty, you'd throw them into the water. And the assumption was that if they sunk to the bottom, then clearly they were telling the truth. But if they swam and rose to the top of the, the, the surface of the water, they were guilty, so you'd pull them out and kill them. This was called trial by ordeal, and people did this. Mm. Now today, to us, it seems completely insane yeah. that that would be a method. But people with brains very much like ours did that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just a tiny little example of how far we've come. And likewise, when people look at us in the future, they will say, really? They used to decide to hire people for jobs by interviewing them. They used to do some little mumbo jumbo talk for 30 minutes with each person, and they would say these incantations, and they would say this one, not that one. To people in the future, our ways of doing things will seem just as bizarre as to us trial by ordeal seems. But remember, we are better off now, right? We are not saying if you sink to the bottom of the water, you're innocent. So just like we've done all of those, not to mention the advances in science and technology and being able to get rid of things like smallpox or whatever. Each of those movements forward 
came from a certain rational way of thinking about the world, of giving up crazy beliefs and, you know, gods who were making us do things on the planet and so on. We did all of that ourselves. So if we look at our past and we see how far we've come, I believe that we ought to be able to handle this. Now, how exactly we do it and which ones we'll pick up on is up to us. That's not up to a scientist like me, by the way. My mm -hmm. job is to demonstrate bias and the fact that it can be removed by doing X, Y, and Z. But what we do exactly about it is a question for P&G as a major mm -hmm. you know, American institution. It's a question that sits at the feet of the nation. What are we going to do as a people? You know? yeah. And that discussion should reflect the views of what many people in our culture believe. And I hope that when that discussion happens, and it is happening now, that it will be done in a somewhat utilitarian manner. By that, I mean that we should care about the greatest good of the greatest number, but we should also care, as John Rawls, who wrote this amazing book called A Theory of Justice, for him, treat everybody equally, except when a certain unequal treatment will be in the interest of the least advantaged, which he believes we will have a good society. Well, I do want to talk to you, Dr. Banaji, about what some of the things are that individuals and organizations like P&G are doing to take a step forward and influence positive change in the world. And I guess we can start with individuals. I got a result that was unsettling in the same way that Malcolm Gladwell's IIT results were unsettling. And if I think back to my college days and when I got in first year of university a pretty bad grade on my calculus exam, I kind of knew what to do with that. You know, I, I sort of walked away and said, okay, I need to go get a tutor. And I got a tutor and I turned things around. I want to know, other than, I guess, the insight that implicit bias for and against various social groups exists in my mind, <laughs> I, I want to understand what can I do? What's my version of, after that calculus exam, going and getting a tutor because I want to get better? What does that look like? You're, you're, you're framing the problem in, in the best way I've ever seen it framed. So. First of all, thank you for that. I think the Tudor calculus example is just really uh, fantastic. Um, we have similar methods uh, for changing our minds as well. So where is the bias coming from? First, you have to ask yourself that, right? Mm. Um, and it's coming from what you see in the world, right? That's one place from which it's coming. How can you change that? Well, it turns out that when I was young, all the data I got was from one newspaper. Okay, that was it, the Deccan Chronicle, it was called. It was delivered every day. And we had no TV. We didn't have a phone in our house. We had lots of books, <laughs> but there was nothing like TV or you know Facebook or anything. And that, of course, has changed so much. So you and I can actually craft a world for ourselves that we look at every day that mimics what we would like the world to be, because it will now send us data of a very different kind. If the actual world is not going to give me the data, I can make that world for myself. I often have talked about a screensaver I used to have on my computer that would feed me 
images of people that I don't typically see in my world. I don't mm. know what is life like for uh, a farmer in Iowa. I, uh, you know, I don't know. But if I see stories or images about them, my brain has now learned about them. So I don't have to actually go experience farming in Iowa. I can acquire it by the sheer sort of dint of my brain imagining that world. That's what human beings have, right? We have this ability to travel in time and in space uh, everywhere we want to. Uh, mm. And books are the oldest thing that we have that does that. But you can decide which Instagram pictures you want to look at. You can decide that. So I think it's like picking a tutor. Yeah. You are picking a tutor who will give you evidence of the kind you don't typically see. That's just a little piece. But then you can do things that are more conscious. You know, what, where, what kind of music do you listen to? Uh, so who will you see? Uh, when I walk into a room, not haven't done this in a long time, but when I walked into a room at work, you know, cocktail parties are really great places to see discrimination and segregation. Uh, the students will hang out with the students, the professors with the professors, the staff with the staff, and even within them, they'll divide up by age and things like that. You know, that is the saddest thing to see that you already know somebody and you're going to go spend more time with that person because it's comforting to you to do that. But once you start to do it the other way, once you say, I belong to group X, so I shall hang out with group Y, you will be amazed at how quickly that becomes much more interesting and therefore a pattern in your behavior. So I think some of that can be done at the individual level. Right. And again, what's clear to me is that the motivation or desire to take these steps needn't be driven by altruism. I mean, if you want, set aside morality and do it because it benefits you, right? I mean, you will make fewer uninformed decisions and you will expose yourself to more of the vibrancy and wonderful variability of life. You know, I don't know which founding father said this, but one of them said, that slavery is not just something that harms the slaves, but that it gets the soul of the slave owner to become rotten. Yeah. I'm finding that most people who are attracted to the ideas that we are putting out there are able to see that. Yeah. Yes, it hurts the women who are not in science. Yes, it hurts the African-Americans who write and say, I don't see jobs that I can get. So that's the harm we're trying to fix. Right. But do not assume that it's not going to help you right. yourself when you do that, because the world you will be creating will indirectly and sometimes very directly actually benefit you. And so even if you are somebody who does not have a social conscience, don't worry. You can still believe in the idea of implicit bias because you'd be believing in it for improving your own lot in life. Right. So talk to us about what organizations can do. For example, I've heard you tell stories of many CEOs that you've worked with, and I think a lot of practical wisdom is baked into those stories. So I'd love for you to tell one or two to our listeners. Yeah. One of my favorite stories um, is a CEO who knew he was going to be retiring and wanted to help his organization with succession planning knowing that he would have to stay out of the actual uh, process. So this is what he told me. He hired a summer research assistant, and together they created brief 
blind biographies of the likely candidates because they, you know, they know their group. They know that the next CEO is going to come from roughly this set. Mm. So they create blind biographies. It describes what the person has done and their accomplishments and what they've been shown to be good at and so on. Life experiences, all of that, but no name and no identifying information. He handed these out and got people who were the decision makers who would be selecting the next CEO to actually rate these on what's, which ones feel like the kind of person we would want. He collected those data and then he told me that he did something very different. He now brought people into his boardroom and he talked about so-and-so and named people the usual way, the way we all do it when we have to make a decision. Should it be you know, Jack or John? And, and when we do that, we know who the human is. And then he collected those data when they talked about the same people, but just with their names included. And he called me up in a hurry to tell me mm. that the names that had been generated using these two methods, the blind method and the not blind method, and he said the names that came up through these two methods were mutually exclusive. In other words, not a single person who came up at the top in this method was the same. Mm. How do I think about this expression, trust your gut? Yeah, you know, I would say if you're in a, in a forest and you think there might be some orange and black striped tiger coming towards you, <laughs> definitely trust your gut. <laughs> okay? But if you are not in a forest and yeah. anywhere else, look at what your gut is saying and then ask yourself, why might my gut be telling me that? What could be the reason? And I think, again, we're smart enough that we will figure out that our gut is pushing us in this direction because the option we're looking at feels more safe, mm. feels more familiar, more similar to us, any of those. And then you can say to yourself, aha, my gut is taking me in the wrong direction. Right. Well, I think there tends to be a cop-out, particularly in business environments where rapid decisions are being made that you need to make calls quickly. Yeah, and that can make it worse. Yes, right. I agree. Right. I totally agree. I, I, yeah, so, so that's, and I think that's true of most of our lives, mm. even judges. Judges who tell me, oh, I can sit and deliberate on this forever. And I say, yes, you can. And therefore, you're much luckier than the police officer who mm. has to decide in a jiffy what to do. However... If your brain is doing something that you are not even aware of, no amount of time is going to help you. You know, if I'm a woman as a judge and my neurons are just, you know, firing away in a certain pattern when I think about what would it be like for this woman to give up her children because it's a custody case and there is a man and there's a woman and they both want custody of their child. If I, as a woman judge, I'm feeling greater sympathy for that woman and what it's going to be like for her to lose her children. And I just don't have the same understanding of what it's going to be like for this man to lose his children. Then no amount of sitting around and thinking is going to change your mind. You will feel, mm. you will feel more strongly about the loss of the one over the other. Mm. And so time alone is not going to remove it, even though in many cases you are right. Having extra time mm. can at least make us challenge ourselves and say, well, wait, wait on, why, why, why is it that you like that Harvard student so much more over this other student, hmm. you know? Right. The, those are the kinds of questions that we can pose to ourselves. And I think uh, I, I have faith that by doing that, we will be making better decisions. Dr. Banaji, one thing that I, I struggle with and that confuses me is that in order to address the problem, of negative biases against particular groups, 
we have to talk about these groups. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about groups, by default, we're talking about differences. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, how do we talk about groups, which implies differences, and not reinforce some of these biases and division mm-hmm. between the groups? Yeah. Um, it, it, it almost feels like a catch-22 to me. Or something. Mm-hmm. You sure you don't want to come be a PhD student in my lab? <laughs> this, this could take you five years to solve. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I left it for the last few minutes <laughs> <but> for you. <laughs> it, you. You're right to raise that. The very thing you're trying to solve gets in the way as you're trying to solve it because the solving it requires paying attention to difference. Right. It is that is that is true. So we need to separate these into two mm. different things, right? So I think that for me. If you are, if you're in my field, you know data that when we look at members of our own groups, they all look like distinct individual human beings to us. Mm. But when we look at members of a group that is not our own, they all look like they're like each other mm. and all very similar to each other. Okay, this is very well known and very well established. Even with human faces, yep. we we can't tell the faces of two people from a very different country than ours apart as easily as we can tell even smaller differences in our own own culture. So I think that when we begin to individualize people, when we say, you know, so-and-so, he's Dan, she is Sherry, she is not, you know, mother, grandmother, uh, and whatever, we don't put them in. And I think the more you do of that individualization, even when you individualize a person and say it's a that human, the data from many of my colleagues, Susan Fisk, the social psychologist, and others, show that we're able to overcome our stereotypes. Mm. If you show people the face of a black person, they've never seen that person, they'll stereotype them as black and male right away because that's what you're seeing. Right. Different from me, that's different. But as soon as you ask a question, do you think this man would like to eat broccoli? Mm. Now, what have you done? You've now thought about that person and their preferences as a human. Human being. As soon as you do that, at least the neuroimaging data show that some of that initial different stuff or fear stuff goes away Mm. and you begin to humanize. So I think that we're going to have to do both. I think when you're a policymaker, when you're a social planner, when you're the CEO and you're trying to make sure that you know different groups have equal access and and so on you have to think about them as groups yeah but then when we think about our own personal experiences who's my friend who do i want to go eat dinner with who should i invite to my home we can now think about them as individuals yeah. as much as we can and the more we can do that the more it will lift us away from seeing all people in another group as similar to each other and different from us. So this is a constant sort of back and forth. But I agree with you. When you want to make policy, we have to think. We have to look at the numbers. Mm. What's infant mortality? For example, what is infant mortality? You asked me, you know, are things getting better or worse or whatever? I mean, look, um, there are people who are claiming that even though infant mortality is getting better for all groups, the difference between black and white is even greater today than it might have been under slavery. And so we have to pay attention to that. Or when we find out that a black baby that is delivered by a black doctor has twice the likelihood of living as if that same baby were delivered by a white doctor. Now, now how can I how can you and I not speak about those data? We have to talk about this difference uh, in mortality rates as a function of the race of the doctor. 
I mean, that's what a smart society would do. It wouldn't shove these data under the rug and say, who cares? Uh, yeah. So I, I think that it is, but it's a very good question because it shows how complex it is. It's not so simple to say, always speak about the groups or always speak about the individuals. It's, it's all of this that we have to do. Well, Dr. Banaji, you can tell that you've been spending decades in this area based on your ability and willingness to embrace that nuance and recognize that complexity. And I think that was such a wonderful way to look at it. I really just wanted to conclude by opening the door to you as someone who has spent decades devoting your life to this mission of tackling implicit bias and finding your calling, as we talked about at the beginning. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with today? What I can leave you with are two ideas. The first is that no matter how much teaching we do on this topic, there is resistance to the idea that we might be biased. So as you develop your own mind about it and you learn a lot about it, make it part of your task in life mm. to explain this to other individuals. Mm. I point to my own bias as the way to do it because that's honest. That would be the only way I can ask that somebody else consider this issue by saying, I have, and I can tell you, I didn't look so good uh, mm. when I took my own test. So I think rather than you know, coming at it from we are the good people and we're going to tell you people in some other part of the country that you are biased, mm. I think that's hardly the way to do it. We all are. It's a function of the way in which we are built and the way in which our culture uh, gets inside of our heads. So that, I think, is number one. But second, I think the data on change are telling me that it is possible. And so I want you to have some optimism that with the right techniques, uh, and that still remains to be sorted out, we will be different uh, than we are now. And the only way to know that that's a certainty is to look at how much worse we used to be in the past. Mm. Right? I mean, we're unbelievably better today in our understanding of the rights of individuals of who are different from us. And globalization and technology have moved us so much faster than our brains were ready that it has brought us to a point that perhaps we were uh, not prepared for. But now that we're here, it just seems to me that if you look at the last 5,000 years, the last 500 years, the last 100 years, and if we can see what we were like then and what we are like now, how can we not have the hope that with the same struggle, the struggle to improve, that we won't be in a hundred years vastly, vastly better. Mm. People at PNG tend to be willing to embrace challenges, meaty challenges. And I think that's a wonderful jumping off point for our listeners and an optimistic way to, to look at the challenges ahead and what we can do about it. So Dr. Banaji, thank you for joining the More Than So podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. 
With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.